When I was in high school, uh, I enjoyed playing some pickup games of football with my friends, sometimes on Saturday afternoons, sometimes on Sunday afternoons. Um, typically, it was a bunch of us who were in the band. We were band nerds, but we still loved to play football. In fact, during some of my high school years, I think our band pickup games, our team was better than the football team that we put on the field, but that's not, that's not saying much with the team that we had. Uh, but I loved pick, playing those pickup games. Now, back then, I was a lot skinnier and younger and faster. And so the position that I typically played when I was playing these pickup games of football was wide receiver because I was fast and I could get out of the way of people. Well, I remember one particular game that I was playing. I caught a pass, and as I turned to go upfield to run toward the end zone, all of a sudden, and, and mind you, I didn't tell you this, we played two-hand touch. Supposed to be two-hand touch, okay? But I turn upfield, and I'm heading for the end zone, and the next thing I know, I am on my back on the ground, and I am struggling to breathe. Have you ever had the wind knocked out of you? You ever experienced that? Okay, and you know what I'm talking about where you cannot catch your breath. Now, phys physicians can tell you the physical phenomena of how it's your diaphragm that's tensed and spasming and just give it a little bit of time and you, you'll recover just a few minutes. But you know what I'm talking about. If you're laying there on the ground and you've just had the wind knocked out of you and you're desperately trying to catch your breath and it doesn't seem like you can. Most of you have experienced that physically. Some of you, however have experienced that on a metaphorical level with life. Where all of a sudden you were going along and everything was fine and then something happens. And it feels like you can't even catch your breath. Maybe it was you show up for work only to find out that you're being let go. Maybe it was coming home to news that mom and dad were separating. Maybe it was finding out that some decision that you made was going to cost you more than you had the ability to pay. Maybe it was getting the phone call from the doctor saying all is not well with your test. Maybe it was getting the phone call that a loved one passed away unexpectedly. Those moments in life where it feels like the wind has been knocked out of us and we're desperately just trying to get a breath. Have you ever been there? If you haven't, chances are that day will come. If you haven't already experienced it, chances are one day it will happen. And if you have been there, then maybe like me, you found yourself wrestling with questions. Questions like, where's God? Why is he allowing this to happen? Those deep questions that we struggle with, those questions that rock us to our core and have us doubting. Those circumstances in our life can oftentimes question, cause us to question everything that we know about God. They make us question his presence. Is he still here? They make, make us question his purpose. Like, what is he up to in my life? They cause us to wrestle. And those questions can be daunting. So what do we do? 
What do we do in those times when those questions come? What do we do when life knocks the wind out of us? And we're left asking those questions. Does the Bible have anything to say to us about those times and what we do in them? Thankfully, the answer is yes. I believe the Bible does have something to say to us for those times. And if you have your copy of God's Word, I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. I want to give you a little bit of background because you see, 1 Peter was writing to some Christians. He was writing to believers who were struggling and suffering. And now their struggle and their suffering may be caused by something different than you are experiencing. But they were struggling nonetheless. They were suffering and struggling through persecution. In fact, the persecution had gotten so hard that many of these believers had had to flee their homeland. They'd had to flee their homes and they were in foreign lands. As you can imagine, many of them had questions. Questions about the goodness of God. Questions like, if God is good, then why is he allowing this trouble in my life? Questions about the power of God. Questions like, maybe God doesn't have the power or the authority to do something about these problems, because if he surely did, I'm sure he would be doing something. Questions about the will of God. Questions like, how in the world can this be a part of God's plan for my life? I've heard many of those questions from believers today. Some of those same questions have come from my own head and my own heart, and maybe from yours as well. And so I think that the thoughts and the feelings and the experiences of these first century Christians that Peter is writing this letter to, they are valid for us today. Some of those same questions that we're having. And so the the words that the Holy Spirit inspired Peter to write to those believers who are suffering and struggling, they have something to say to us today as well. And if you're not in the middle of one of those times right now, if if things are going great, I, 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 I praise God, but take notes. Because there will come a time when you're going to need what the Bible has to say here in 1 Peter chapter 1. You're going to need to know, what do I do when life knocks the wind out of me? Look with me at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, 
the salvation of your souls. Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully. Who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that, not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. In our text this morning, I believe the scripture gives us three steps for us to take in those moments of our life where we are in that struggle when life knocks the wind out of us. And here's the first step. The first one is simply this. Remember who you are. Remember who you are. 1 Peter chapter 1 seems like just a normal introduction. And while it is true that this is the standard form of a letter that you would find written during this time, there is so much more than an introduction in those first two verses. I, I want you to notice the way Peter identifies himself and his audience. In, in this introduction, they, these two identifications matter. First, look at how he identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now that word apostle literally means one who is sent. And it really can be used to refer in a broad sense to anyone who has been commissioned by God to carry out an assignment. But the word also was used in a unique sense, a very specific sense, in which it referred to the first 12 group of men who were called, commissioned, and empowered by Jesus. These men were empowered by the Holy Spirit to take the message of the gospel, to take what Jesus had imparted to them, and to pass that on to the next group that would come after them. Now, in that sense, there are no more apostles. In that specific sense, they died when the last apostle died. The last of those 12 men died. There will not be any more added to that number. And so what this means is, for Peter, Peter is uniquely authorized. Peter is uniquely empowered. He has special authority to proclaim the word of God. You see, what Peter writes and what Peter teaches is not just his own thoughts. It's not just his own words. What Peter is communicating to these disciples is the word of God. It's God's word, not Peter's. And so you need to understand these words that we're reading today are not just words that were written over 2,000 years ago by some man. They are the words of God, living, active, just as relevant, just as powerful, just as applicable to your life and mine today as they were when Peter first wrote them. These are the words of the Holy Spirit of God. And notice how Peter chooses to identify himself, not just as an apostle, but as an apostle of Jesus Christ. You see, Peter's identity is completely wrapped up in the person of Jesus. Everything about Peter, he just oozes Jesus. He's not just an apostle, he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. He didn't act on his own behalf. He acted on behalf of Christ. But notice how he identifies his audience, not just himself, but notice how he identifies his audience. In verse 1, he writes, to the pilgrims, that Greek term there is the word peripedemos. 
That Greek word is parapodimos, and it can be translated as exile or alien or stranger or temporary resident or even sojourner. I like that word. I like sojourner. We use it to refer to someone who comes from a foreign country to a new city and a new land and lives among the natives for a temporary period of time. Peter calls these believers sojourners, pilgrims. But why? Why does he want them to recognize who they are? Why does he want them to understand that part of their identity is wrapped up in this idea of being a sojourner, a pilgrim, a temporary resident? A very important reason. And the same thing that you and I need to be reminded of today. You see, the reason Peter wanted that marked and imprinted in their identity is they needed the reminder, and you and I need this reminder, that this world is not our home. This world is not our home. You see, it's easy to think that Peter referred to these believers as sojourners because they had been displaced from their home. The persecution that had come, that had driven them out of their home, maybe that's why Peter calls them temporary residents, because they're not in their home. That's not the reason. That wasn't his reason for calling them parapodemos. You say, well, Pastor Joe, how do you know that? Take a look at the next phrase. He calls them pilgrims of the dispersion. That word translated dispersion literally means scattered. It's from the Greek word diaspora. It literally means scattered. So he calls them pilgrims of the diaspora. Peter is saying, yes, you have been scattered from your physical homes. Yes, you're not in your normal dwelling. That is true. But don't miss sight of this. You are pilgrims of the dispersion. You've been sent to these other areas, but that word is not your identity. You're being scattered is not who you are. Who you are is a sojourner because this world is not your home. If Peter had simply wanted to refer to the fact that they were physically scattered, all he would have needed to do was to use that second term, that diaspora. He could have just called them the dispersion, but he didn't. He called them pilgrims of the dispersion because he wanted to drive home this point that this world is not your home. You and I need to realize that truth, that in Christ we are citizens of a far greater kingdom, and that in Christ we are citizens of the kingdom of God. You know, I'm convinced that you and I lose sight of that truth pretty often. Sometimes we get comfortable and we act like this is home. Not that we're simply journeying through this to our home, but we act like we're home I don't know if you realize it or not, but, it's, but attempting to live as a permanent resident in a place you are merely visiting can cause problems and cause all sorts of problems because it's not home, it's just where you're visiting. And I'm convinced we need to be reminded when life knocks the wind out of us, when things get hard, when the circumstances turn our world upside down, we need to be reminded that all that is here, this world is not my home. These are temporary circumstances that I'm traveling through. One day we will be home. 
But until then, we need to realize that this is simply the place where God has placed us to know him and make him known to others. One day we'll be home. I want you to notice the other term Peter uses to identify his audience there in verse 2. He uses this word elect, beginning there at, in verse 2. The Greek word there means chosen or called out ones. It's the phrase that Peter uses to refer to those people who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus and they've been adopted into God's family. Now, before you think there's anything in particular that this group of individuals did to deserve that, I want you to notice how Peter clarifies that word elect. Elect what? According to the foreknowledge of God the Father and sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. There was nothing that these believers did that made them worthy of being the elect. This was the gracious work of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They acted to redeem these individuals, to bring them into God's family. And I'll tell you this, if God had not acted to graciously bring them into his family, they would not have been there. They would not have been able to claim that identity. But what you, need, you and I need to understand this today is simply this. God is still in the business of taking people who are not worthy of mercy and grace and giving it to them and adopting them into his family, giving them forgiveness and redemption. You see, the Bible says that every one of us has screwed up. Every one of us has failed. Every one of us has said, I want to do things my way, not God's way. And when we did, the Bible says we separated ourselves from God by sin. Sin came in, and there's nothing we can do about our sin. There's no amount of good works that you can do. There's no amount of church attendance you can do. There's no amount of reading your Bible you can do. None of that will ever make up for one sin. This is why Jesus had to come. This is why Christ had to go to the cross and die. The Bible said, I shared that passage earlier, 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Why? That we might become the righteousness of God in him. That righteousness that God looks for is perfection. None of you here, none of us here are perfect. We need Jesus. If you're here today, you're separated from God by your sin. You've never taken that step of faith and asked God to forgive you and redeem you from your sin, made him Lord of your life. If you've never taken that step of faith, you need to know that that offer is available to you. It can be yours today. No matter what you have done, no matter who you are, it can be yours. And it is your only hope. If you have that hope, you understand this. When life hits you hard. Remember who you are. Remember that this world is not your home. Remember that you belong to God, that you are a child of God, that you will one day inherit the kingdom of God. That is one step we can take when life hits us hard. There's a second step Peter gives believers that I believe will help us in the middle of our struggles today, and it's this. Remember what you have. Remember what you have. Not just remember who you are, but remember what you have. What is it that God has given to these believers? Notice what he said there in verse 3. He has begotten us again to a living hope. Would you agree with me that hope is something that is in short supply these days? 
Would you agree with me that hope is something that people long for? Would you agree with me that hope is something that maybe we have forgotten that we have from time to time? Biblical hope is different from the hope that we find in this world. Biblical hope is different from the hope that this world offers. You see, the hope that this world offers is a wish or a want. Biblical hope is not a wish or a want. Biblical hope is a certainty of what has been promised. When the Bible talks about hope, it's talking about certainty. And the reason it can be certain is because the hope that the Bible offers is found in a person. The hope is found in Jesus. And Jesus never fails. Jesus never changes. Jesus is constant. He always offers hope. We can be in the most desperate circumstances we could ever imagine. And yet we can hold fast and have hope because we have Christ. I want you to notice what else these believe, Peter says these believers have in verse 4. Not just this hope, but an inheritance. You know what inheritance is. That you receive upon the death of a benefactor. For example, I, when I die, I have specified what my inheritance is to go to. How, it's to be, how my children are going to receive that. And my family when, when I die. Peter says that these believers have been given an inheritance. And it's not just any inheritance. He says it's an inheritance that is incorruptible. That word there can be translated as imperishable, meaning it's an inheritance that can't be touched by death. It will be here for all of eternity. He says it's an inheritance that is undefiled, meaning that it is unstained by evil. There's no evil that can touch it or take it away. And finally, it is an inheritance that does not fade away, meaning it is not diminished with any sort of passing of time. So what is it? What is this inheritance that is death-proof and evil-proof and time-proof? What is this inheritance that is reserved in heaven for you? It's spelled out in verse 5 and in verse 10. It's one word, salvation. This is our hope. This is what we have through Christ. God has secured salvation for mankind through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That is what he has passed on to us. Listen, there are going to be some tough days on this planet. In fact, it may even be that our toughest days are not behind us, but are before us. And I don't say that because I'm a pessimist or a masochist or because I enjoy any of that. I'm not looking forward to days of difficulty. But listen to me and make no mistake about this. No matter what may come, no matter what may happen, never ever forget what you have in Christ. You have a salvation that cannot be touched by anything in this world. Your salvation and eternal life is not something that can be taken from you. Verse 5 says that it is kept by the power of God through faith. It is safe and secure. It is secured by Jesus himself. Just how precious is this salvation? Well, Peter makes mention of three things in 
verses 10 through 12, he says, the prophets long to know about it. This salvation that you and I get to experience, the prophets long to experience that. And he says, even the angels desire to look into it. This is a salvation that you and I can experience. And so when we struggle, when life hits us out of nowhere, we need to remember who we are. Remember that this world is not our home. We need to remember what we have, this salvation that can't be touched by anything that this world may throw at us. But there's one final step Peter gives the believers that I believe will help us in the middle of our struggles, and that's this. We need to recognize what trials produce. Recognize what these trials we go through produce. Peter acknowledged the reality of the struggles that these believers were going through. He didn't ignore them. He didn't dismiss them. He didn't pretend that they were some figment of their imagination. In fact, the phrase in verse 6 that's translated, have been grieved by various trials, comes from a military expression that simply means to be constantly harassed. Peter didn't ignore them or dismiss them. He acknowledged them. He says, those trials, they are real. But what he did do was he put those trials in proper perspective. He helped them to see them appropriately. Isn't it amazing how perspective changes everything? When I was a kid growing up, one of the things my mom loved to do was cross-stitch. I'm afraid that's a dying art. I haven't seen very many people cross-stitching these days. But I always was fascinated by these items that she would make. And depending on which side of the cross-stitch you looked at, it either looked like something wonderful or it looked like a mess. You look at the front, you're like, wow, that's amazing. But then you look at the back, and you're like, what three-year-old did this? Isn't it interesting how perspective changes everything? Peter took the struggles and the challenges and the sufferings that these believers were going through, and he placed them in a proper perspective so that they would see them and understand them correctly. From our perspective, some of the things that we go through here on life, they don't make sense to us. We wonder why God allows the things he allows. And if we're honest with ourselves and each other, we sometimes question whether what is happening is actually a part of fulfilling his plan for our lives and for humanity. I want you to notice something, though. I want you to notice what Peter says these trials produce. First, he says they produce the authenticity of our faith. They prove the authenticity of our faith. He says in verse 7, these trials serve to verify the genuineness of your faith. In other words, it's in the middle of our trials. It's in the middle of our sufferings. It's in the middle of our struggles that we prove that our faith in Jesus is more than just lip service to God. We prove that our faith is real in the midst of the trials. Warren Wearsby once said this, and I quote, the trials of life test our faith to prove its sincerity. A faith that cannot be tested cannot be trusted. 
A person who abandons his or her faith when the going gets tough is only proving that he or she really had no faith at all. True faith in Jesus is revealed by faithfulness in the midst of the struggles and the trials. Without them, we don't have the opportunity to demonstrate the authenticity of our faith. If you remember, this was the uh, argument that Satan used with God against Job. He said, of course Job worships you. Of course he would. Look at how you've blessed his life. Look at how you've just richly poured out your blessings on him. Why wouldn't he worship you? But if you were to throw a little bit of difficulty into his life, if you were to make things a little bit harder, he'd reveal his true belief. Then he'd curse you to your face. But even when God allowed Satan to bring calamity and trials into Job's life, he remained faithful. He demonstrated and he proved the authenticity of his faith in the midst of those trials. That's one thing trials produce. But here's another. Not just the authenticity of our faith, but the praise of our Savior. The praise of our Savior. In the second half of verse 7, it says that it results in praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When you and I reveal to the world around us that Jesus is more valuable and more precious to us than our personal comfort or our personal preferences, when we remain faithful in the middle of the trials, in the middle of the suffering, we ref- when we refuse to turn our back on Jesus and walk away, it results in the praise of our Savior because others get to see what a treasure Jesus is to us and they are led to worship and praise him. Listen, church, Jesus is absolutely worthy. It doesn't matter what it is that we are talking about. There is nothing you and I will face that is greater than his worth. No suffering, no trial, no anything we may endure is greater than his worth. When you're tempted to think the price is too too steep, remember, he's worth it. When you're tempted to think you just can't go on, remember, he's worth it. It may be that God is using those circumstances in your life to show others just how precious he is to you. He may be using your struggles to let others see how valuable he is. So don't quit. Don't give up. Don't throw in the towel. Hang on. Because if you do, Peter says in verse 9, you will receive the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. It's by clinging tightly to Jesus in the middle of our struggles that we reveal the authenticity of our faith. Church, you need to know this. There are some things about God that you will only learn when you're in the middle of the struggle. There are some things about the comfort of God, the peace of God, that you will only learn when you're right there in the middle of the suffering and the trials. You can't learn it outside of that. We can only experience them in the middle of the struggle. So don't pray or wish them away. Embrace them and then cling to Jesus in the middle of the hurt and the pain. When Dr. Jerome Groupman diagnosed patients with serious diseases, 
the Harvard medical scholar professor discovered that all of them were, and I quote, looking for a sense of genuine hope. And indeed, that hope was as important to them as anything he might prescribe them as a physician. He wrote a book called The Anatomy of Hope. After writing this book, Dr. Grootman was asked for his definition of hope, and he replied, I quote, Basically, I think hope is the ability to see a path to the future. You're facing dire circumstances. And you know, you need to know everything that's blocking or threatening you. And then you see a path or a potential path to get you where you want to be. Once you see that, there's a tremendous emotional uplift that occurs. He goes on and he says, the doctor confessed, I think hope has been, is, and always will be the heart of medicine and healing. We could not live without hope. Even with all the medical technology available to us now, he says this, we still come back to this profound human need to believe that there is a possibility to reach a future that is better than the one in the present. Dr. Grootman is right about one thing. We cannot live without hope. But what he's wrong about is the foundation of hope. The foundation of hope is not an ability to see a path to the future. True hope is found in Jesus and only in Jesus. I'm reminded of the words of that old hymn, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Listen, life can be tough. It can throw some things at you that leave you reeling. What do you do when that happens? You stop. And you remember who you are. You remember that you are elect. You remember that you're a child of God. You remember that this world is not your home. You remember what you have as salvation that is incorruptible, imperishable, not tainted by evil or stained by time. It will never, ever fade. And you recognize what the trials in life do. They prove the authenticity of your faith. And they result in the praise of our Savior. When life hits you, turn to Jesus, for that's where your hope is found. Father, I thank you today that we have hope because of Jesus. But God, I can't help but think that maybe there's someone in this room or maybe someone who's joining us online that they are not experiencing hope. They're feeling hopeless. And the reason, God, is because they are separated from you. They don't know that peace or that comfort or that joy that comes from knowing Jesus. And so my prayer right now, even in this moment, is that your Holy Spirit would convict them that would show them their desperate need for a Savior, that you would show them that you are there waiting with arms wide open, ready to embrace them, 
ready to forgive any and all sin, ready to give them hope in a future. And let today be the day that they yield and surrender to Jesus. And God, I pray for your people. God, it's so easy to lose sight of these truths. It's so easy to get our eyes fixated on our circumstances or what's going on or the struggles or the trials. It's easy to lose sight of who we are and what we have and even what those trials are doing. And so God, use a message like this to refocus us, to get our eyes back on Jesus, that we would see and view all of life appropriately as you've designed us to. God, break us of any patterns of sin. Bring us to a place where we are more obedient and fully surrendered to Christ. In whose name we pray, amen.